Well, almost 20 years ago now, when our boys were much younger, ages 12, 10, 7, and 5, as I recall, uh, we took a family spring break trip to Florida to visit my parents, who lived down there at that time. Uh, we considered taking a trip to Disney World, but uh, we had done that once before and found it to be pretty pricey. As I recall, it cost our family a dollar a minute to be at Disney World. Figured that out. So we decided to go to a cheaper option. We, found, we heard of a place called Gatorland, and we decided to check it out. That's the boys and me standing in the jaws of death at Gatorland. Now, Gatorland's in the middle of a swamp in Nowheresville, Florida, opened as a roadside attraction in 1949 and looks like it. Um, now claims to be the gator capital of the world with over 3,000 alligators. And gators are everywhere. Uh, you walk in these narrow little b wooden boardwalks with flimsy-looking railings, and the gators are, like, right there, just spread all over the place like that. Uh, we actually got to watch a live feeding demonstration. Uh, they actually hang raw chickens, whole chickens, on ropes over the water, and the gators leap out. They come up out of the water, and they just chomp on those chickens. Okay, now we had four boys under 12. Way better than Disney World, right? Way better watching that happen. Uh, they also had other reptiles. They had snakes, very large snakes. My wife was the only one brave enough of all of us to do that. I think you'd agree that that's a very large snake. Do you happen to know what the largest snake in the world is? Anybody? It's called the reticulated python. All right. They're native to Southeast Asia, can grow up to a length of over 30 feet and 250 pounds, but they're not the deadliest snake in the world. The deadliest snake in the world, and I had to do research on this, is called the Inland Taipan. It's native to Australia. It's only three to five feet long, but one bite contains enough toxin to kill 100 fully grown human beings. Now, I tell you all this not only to totally creep you out on a Sunday morning, which is my first and foremost goal, but because today is going to be about a different snake, a much more venomous snake, a much more dangerous snake, about the great snake in the Garden of Eden. We're nearing the end of our series called The Gospel in Genesis. I think we have one more week to go, where we're looking through the first three chapters of the first book of the Bible. We've talked through the creation of all things, the creation of heaven and earth, the creation of all plant and animal life, the creation of human beings and the image of God, the creation of male and female, and the foundations for marriage. And then last week, we saw the dramatic story of the snake in the garden, the serpent's deception of the man and the woman the decision of sin, and then the question of God. Where are you, Adam? What is it you have done? Now today we look at just two verses, Genesis 3, 14 and 15. And these verses are, um, I don't think I've ever taught or preached on them before. They're quite difficult and quite condensed. So I'm going to read these for you, follow along on the screen or your personal Bible, and then we'll dig in. So Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. We're going to look at three things today. I think we see in this passage the curse, the conflict, and then the conquest. We'll start with the curse. Uh, I would guess at least some of you paid attention over the last few weeks uh, to the very public trial of a man named Alex Murdoch. Anybody watch that trial or see reports of it? He's a South Carolina lawyer who was accused of killing his wife and son in an attempt to cover up his many financial crimes. The trial lasted a full six weeks, with most of that time spent uh, with questioning. Attorneys questioning witnesses and questioning the defendant for days on end, presenting evidence. And then the case went to the jury, and the jury, after a six-week trial, took only three hours to come up with their verdict. Guilty on all counts. And then the time came for the judge to pronounce the sentence. And there were no more questions, there were no more answers, no more uh, excuses, no more alibis given, just judgment. And that judgment, if you watch the trial, was two consecutive life terms for Alex Murdoch. And that's kind of what we see here in Genesis 3. Let me start with verse 14 again. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Remember? Twisted my command, uh, lied, deceived the man and the woman. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, I think it's important for us to take another short look at, at who we're dealing with here. So who or what is the serpent? As we saw last week, if you were here, the serpent is in some sense a manifestation of Satan, the adversary of God. But where did Satan come from? What do we know? Well, the prophet Ezekiel gives us just a hint. In Ezekiel chapter 28, we read, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Many scholars believe that's a prophecy not only about a a, a pagan nation at the time or king, but also referring to the serpent, Satan himself. Then we see in Isaiah chapter 14 these words, How far you have fallen from heaven, morning star. The Latin translation for that word is Lucifer, which means shining one, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. So let me just summarize. Uh, So Satan was once an angel of light, a supernatural heavenly being of great beauty who became proud, the Bible says. So the original sin is actually pride, who desired to exalt himself above God, his creator, and was then cast out of heaven. In the book of Revelation, we have a different viewpoint from the end of the Bible, and it says this, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Many scholars believe that refers to one-third of the angels in heaven who were flung down with Satan. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. Pay attention to the language here. 
The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. You see this great conflict between the serpent of old and the child born to rule. Verse 7, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Now, this is highly symbolic apocalyptic language, but it does tell us who we're dealing with here in Genesis chapter 3. This is Satan, the adversary of God, the ancient supernatural being who set himself against God as the enemy of God who seeks to destroy all God made as good. In Genesis 3, we then see that Satan enters the garden disguised as a serpent or inhabiting a serpent and twists the command of God, questions God's goodness and authority, and deceives the woman who then gives the fruit to the man. Now notice here, God does not question the serpent as he questioned the man and the woman. He doesn't enter into a conversation with the serpent because the serpent is a liar, the serpent is a deceiver. God simply pronounces a sentence on the serpent. And God's judgment comes in the form of a curse. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. On your belly you shall go. Now, if you're paying attention, this is interesting because this reads like it's a new thing. It reads as if prior to God's curse and judgment, the serpent did not crawl on its belly. As I was looking back through research, most scholars, like 90% of scholars who look at this, suggest that the serpent originally somehow walked upright or even had wings. We don't know for sure, but my theory is that when the serpent entered the garden, he came as the most beautiful and beguiling and intelligent of creatures. After all, the prophet said, your heart became proud on account of your beauty. So it makes sense to me that the serpent didn't slither in on his belly to the garden, but rather came in and appeared in beauty and wisdom and knowledge. Why else would Eve be tempted to listen be tempted to enter into a conversation. But the curse of God sentences the serpent to slither on its belly. So every time we see today a snake, it should remind us that Satan, the serpent, has been condemned already and has been judged by the sentencing of God. Second, we see, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. This is also highly symbolic language. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, eating or licking dust was an expression of being totally defeated. We see in Psalm 72, May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Isaiah 49, They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. So Genesis 3 is not simply telling us why snakes slither on the ground is telling us that God in his authority has already pronounced a sentence on the great ancient serpent, the one called Satan, who is his enemy. That's the first thing we see, the curse. The second thing we see here is what I'm just calling the conflict. The conflict. Uh, I mentioned last week that our longtime 
member of this church, wonderful man named Henry Flora, died uh, the last Sunday in February at the age of 105. Uh, we're actually going to have a service for Henry uh, here in this uh, sanctuary on Saturday, April the 1st. You'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. But Henry was a veteran of World War II. And I thought about this. He was a World War II veteran, and that war ended 78 years ago. He served in the Pacific Theater under General Douglas MacArthur. But in talking to Henry and his family, it made me think about another part of World War II. Now, I'm not a, a World War II historian, but it made me think about um, the D-Day invasion of Normandy. History tells us that the D-Day invasion was accomplished at great cost. Somewhere over 29,000 American soldiers killed, 109,000 wounded or missing. But many war historians believe that even though the great conflict continued to rage for almost a year, once that invasion was successful, once the foothold was gained, victory for the Allies was inevitable, many historians will tell us. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity means hostility, conflict, irreconcilable differences. But when God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's not just explaining why people don't like snakes. There's something much bigger going on here. We were talking about this at our preaching team this past Thursday morning, about this this one sentence in this passage. And Pastor Jeff got up and went to uh, a whiteboard in the room where we we meet, and he uh, drew a picture. He drew this picture. Now, this is my version Somebody's laughing at my artwork. <laughs> Pastor Jeff's picture looked much different than this. He's more of an artist. But he drew this picture. God, and then, then the, that squiggly line represents uh, separation, enmity, and then you have the man and the woman, and then you have the serpent. All right? he, he drew that picture up here to indicate they had disobeyed God. Uh, there is a rift between them and their creator because they listened to the serpent. And then right next to it, Jeff drew this picture. He moved the line of enmity and separation to another location. God is saying that the enmity, the conflict, is no longer between you and me, but rather between you and the serpent, between your offspring, and the word there in Hebrew literally is your seed, and her offspring or seed. Now, what's going on here? Who's being talked about here? Who are the offspring of the serpent? Simply put, those who reject the goodness and authority of God as the serpent rejected the goodness and authority of God. Who are the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman? Those who worship and obey the authority of God. Now, if we look ahead a bit in the redemptive story of the Bible, we see this conflict played out over and over again throughout the entire Old Testament into the New Testament. We see in the very next generation, Cain and Abel. One who honored God, one who did not, and one who killed his brother as a result. We see Noah and the rest of humanity. We eventually see the Hebrew people and all the surrounding pagan nations that sought to destroy them or take them captive, all the way to the New Testament where we see the church in the midst of the Roman Empire that sought to destroy it. The Bible tells us that this conflict is a great spiritual battle being waged on three fronts. I'll come back to that picture in just a moment, so you can leave it up there. First, on the cultural level. The battle's being fought on a cultural level. In 1 John 5, we read, We know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, it doesn't take a Bible scholar or a cultural historian to look around and see that 
something's broken in the world. That this conflict is being played out in the world around us at the cultural level. We see hatred and division and violence and confusion. Confusion about, about God. Confusion about the most fundamental aspects of being human, male and female. We can see it. We just look around us. We see a culture that's largely rejected the authority, truth, the command of God. And many who believe that the very idea of God is not only foolish, but dangerous. Because truth, in the eyes of our culture, is really whatever human beings decide it is. It's being played out at the cultural level. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at now at work in those who are disobedient. The prince of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, is referring to Satan, the serpent in the garden, the supernatural being that God has allowed to have limited authority and power. But he was real. Secondly, we see the battle, the conflict being played out at the cosmic level, what I would call the cosmic level. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Paul is saying that the fall into sin has had cosmic, universal consequences that all of creation is also fallen and broken, that there's a great spiritual battle being fought even now for every square inch of the universe because Satan, the enemy, wants to destroy. It's a conflict that's mysterious. I can't really explain it totally to you. It's unseen. We can't see it with our physical eyes, but it's real. I like to think of it kind of like the TV or sound waves that are going through this room right now that we aren't able to see with our physical eyes, but which are real. And so, in the same way, the power of the prince of the air is real. But thirdly, we see the battle being played out on a personal level. 1 Peter 5 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. In his book, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis famously said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I think what Lewis means here is that while Satan does exist as a malevolent spiritual force, Satan does not have ultimate authority. Satan is not equal to God. Satan is not omnipresent, nor omniscient, nor omnipotent. The book of Job tells us that God has, for his reasons allowed Satan limited authority to wreak havoc and cause suffering on the earth. One day that suffering will end. One day that enemy will be destroyed. But for now, he's been given limited authority. Satan is referred to by many names in the Bible. The liar, the deceiver, the destroyer, the accuser of the brethren. Simply put, as I said before, Satan seeks to destroy all God made as good and his primary target is us, the ones God made in his image, the ones God loves, Satan hates. Now, how Satan works, what spiritual technology he uses, how he exerts his limited power, 
and, and influence is mysterious. I can't really explain it to you. We simply know from Genesis 3 that we've already studied that he works by questioning God's word. Did God really say? He confuses the woman. He lies and he deceives. And then he promised they could be like God. And he does the same thing with us today. Through culture, like I already mentioned, through the prevailing winds of our culture and the world that bombard us today with contradictions to God's word, did God really say, surely he didn't mean that. And at the personal level, through what the New Testament calls our sinful nature, that through Adam and Eve's sin, we have an inherited sinful nature. In James chapter 1, we read, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away, listen, by their own sin, evil desire, that's the sinful nature, and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when, when it is full grown, <clears throat> gives birth to death. Now what we need to see here is that the great spiritual conflict is mysterious, but it is real. God has an enemy. We have an enemy. You have a spiritual enemy who lies and deceives, who seeks to destroy. But even in this conflict, we see a little glimmer of hope. We see a, a hint of the gospel even here. Because even though Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, were deceived, even though they trusted Satan's lies over the command of God, even though they disobeyed God and sinned, God has not abandoned them. He has not stopped loving them. He does not seek their destruction. He seeks their redemption. Now, their sin's going to have serious, far-reaching consequences, which, which we're going to see next week. But God is already putting into motion his redemptive plan. We see this in that little picture I had for you, that he's moved the enmity from between him and the man and the woman to between the man and the woman and Satan himself, the serpent. So that God is offering them protection from their great enemy. And where do we see this? Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stay, take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Even though Adam and Eve... And we today, as sinful people, need redemption. We need restoration. God is on our side working for us to protect us from, from the one who seeks our destruction. And that begins in Genesis chapter 3. And that leads us to the final point today, which is the conquest. Genesis 3.15, again. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here, God is speaking directly to the serpent. Now notice here, uh, we, now we see the offspring, literally the seed of the woman identified as a singular person. He shall bruise your head. We're talking now about one person. So who is the seed of the woman? Who is the he being referred to here? First of all, we might not, and we might not notice this if we don't study the language, but the phrase, her offspring, 
which in Hebrew again is literally her seed, is a very strange phrase uh, in the Old Testament because uh, speaking of the seed of a woman, in every other case in the Old Testament, uh, whenever seed is referred to, it's referred to as the seed of the man because in the Hebrew way of thinking, it's the man who carries the seed. But here God speaks of the seed of a woman, of a single person, a he who will be born to a woman without need of the seed of a man. You following me here? Many scholars believe this is the first messianic prophecy in the whole Bible, pointing to the virgin birth of Jesus of Nazareth. He, this one born of the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now the Hebrew word translated bruise here is shoop. It means to bruise, to wound, to strike. The NIV translation reads, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Two different words used for the same Hebrew word. The point is that the seed of the woman, this singular person, will deliver a blow to the serpent's head, which is a mortal wound, while the serpent will deliver a blow to his heel, which is a temporary wound. So Genesis is telling us that victory... Victory will come. The worn born of the seed of the woman will defeat the serpent once and for all, but his victory will come at a cost. Do you see that? Theologians call this the proto-evangelium. That is the first gospel. Because it's the first place in the Bible that points us to the cross. That will come many books later in the biblical story. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now here's what I see dawned on me this week reading this. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter right at the center of our faith as believers. The death, the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. But Easter actually begins in Genesis 3. 15. God is simultaneously announcing his judgment on the serpent. He's announcing the final, ultimately, ultimate victory over sin and death and his promise of a future salvation all in one sentence rendered to the serpent. So there is a great spiritual battle. That's what we're introduced here to in Genesis. There's a great spiritual battle. So Are we in a battle? Are we in a conflict? Yes, we are. Are you in a conflict? Yes, you are. I hope if nothing else you recognize that Satan is a real being who wants your destruction. And if he can't take away your salvation, he wants at least to discourage you and dishearten you and make you ineffective in your faith and rob you of joy. Are you in a spiritual battle? You are. We do have an enemy. We have an enemy who lies, who deceives who destroys, who we're introduced to in the very first few chapters of the Bible, who tempts us to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's authority, who is the accuser, who whispers us to us in a thousand ways that we are unloved, unforgivable, and must hide from God in our shame. Yes, we are in a conflict, a great spiritual battle. But what Genesis 3 tells us is that although the conflict yet rages... The final victory has already been accomplished. The final victory has already been won. And at the personal level, every time I stand in a cemetery, 
next to an open grave with a family that's saying goodbye to a loved one who is a believer, every time, it makes me think two things. First, death is the enemy. The Bible says death is the final enemy to be destroyed by our Creator, by God. Death is the result of sin, and it's the goal of our great enemy to bring to all of us death. But the second thing I think is that death is not the final word. It's not. And I always read this passage that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That victory is guaranteed in Genesis 3, verse 15. Will you bow with me for prayer? Lord God, I thank you today for your word. Thank you for helping us identify with clarity our great enemy, the one who lies and tempts and seeks to destroy. Thank you for the great promise that our victory is already won by the price you paid. And now, even now, I ask your spirit to remind those of us who feel shame in some way that they are forgiven through your blood. Remind those of us who are discouraged that your love is greater than their discouragement. Remind those who are tempted that your word is true and good and can be trusted. Remind all of us today that your victory is certain and therefore our hope is certain as well. And these things I pray in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. Receive the benediction today comes from 1 Peter chapter 5. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Have a great day.